Have you seen the movie Hachi, A Dog's Tale? How many of you have seen the movie Hachi? I highly recommend this movie. I highly recommend that if you do watch it, however, that you have a box of Kleenexes sitting right next to you because it's one of those. But it actually is based on, apparently, a true story. Hachi was a dog. Hachi was a dog that was discovered one time in a train station by a professor who uh, was taking the commuter train home from work, and he saw this little puppy dog running around. It had escaped out of a crate. It had apparently been shipped over from Japan and was uh, supposed to go somewhere. And so he took the dog home and tried to find the owner, but couldn't find the owner. So he ended up keeping the dog. He named it Hachi because on its collar it had the Japanese symbol that somebody told him was pronounced Hachi, and it meant the number eight. So his name was Hachi from then on. Hachi used to follow him to the train station every day, and he would shoo him back home. And he'd follow him to the train station, and he'd shoo him back home. And finally, there, there developed a, a thing between Hachi and this professor that every day, when Hachi would hear the train whistle blowing from his house, he would uh, run down to the train station and meet the professor when he came home. And then one day, after this had gone on for quite some time, the professor had a heart attack and died at work. And he didn't come home that night. But Hachi didn't know that. And so Hachi continued to go. Every day, he'd hear the train whistle blow. And he'd go and he'd sit there. And he'd wait for his master. This went on for days. And weeks. And months. And years. Actually, ten years. That dog, every day, would go and wait for his master to come home. And supposedly, this is a true story. Uh, If you go to Japan, there is a statue of a dog that actually had done this and went every day waiting for its master. And, of course, in the movie, they dramatize the whole thing. And there's a scene at the end of the movie where the dog is closing his eyes in sleep for the last time. He's now an old dog. And as he drifts off, you see uh, the professor, his master, coming to him with open arms. And they meet each other. And I think what a wonderful picture of what James is talking about here today. Because this is a sermon, a passage, rather, about patience, patiently waiting. And even more specifically, I think it is a a, a passage about patience in light of the coming of the Lord. The Master is coming back. And James says we need to be patient in light of that. Patience because of the coming of the Lord, where our faithful waiting will be rewarded, just like Hachi's faithful waiting was rewarded. I don't know if you noticed or not, but in this passage, James mentions the coming of James mentions the coming of the Lord three times. Did you notice that? He mentioned it in verse seven, verse eight, and verse nine. He also alluded to it in some other places. He alluded to it in verses eleven through twelve. And so this is a passage about the coming of the Lord. Look at those verses, and you'll see that we learn from uh, from them that the coming of the Lord is a fact. Verse number seven. We learn that the coming of the Lord is imminent. Verse number 8. We learn that the coming of the Lord is a time of judgment. Verse number 9. And we learn that it's a time when we finally and ultimately see God's good intentions for us in verse number 8. You know, Jesus is coming again. You believe that, right? Can I get an amen out of that? Jesus is coming again. The coming of the Lord that James talks about here is a fact of history. And just like all other 
facts of history. It is established. It is fact. And I can hear you all right now saying, history preacher? History? Don't you mean prophecy? Well, yes, it is prophecy. But you know, the coming of the Lord that James is talking about here in the mind of God is no different than if it had already happened. There is no difference in the mind of God between history and prophecy. They're all the same thing, past, present, and future. In the mind of God, what is promised is just as sure as what has already happened. And so we look at this, the coming of the Lord that he talks about here, and it is just as if it had already happened. It is just as sure as any other historical fact that might have already taken place. Indulge me a minute as I remind you of some of the particulars. Remember what the songwriter said. Marvelous message we bring. Wonderful carol we sing. Glorious word of the king. Jesus is coming again. He's coming first in the clouds. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Just back a few pages from where you are there in James. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look with me at verse number 13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. His next event is the rapture, where we will meet him in the clouds. He won't step foot on earth. He'll meet us in the air. And then, while the church enjoys seven years with Jesus in heaven, the lost world and those down here will enjoy seven years of hell on this earth. A period the Bible refers to as the tribulation or the great tribulation. A time the Bible says is unlike any that has ever been. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. Then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. Seven years of tribulation. And then the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will split the eastern sky. And he will come back and land on this earth. He will step foot on the Mount of Olives. And wouldn't it be great if it would happen in June of 2014 while we're all standing there looking at the Mount of Olives? Wouldn't that be spectacular? Uh, But he's coming back and he's going to stand right there on the Mount of Olives and he's going to walk into Jerusalem through the eastern gate, Connie. And he's going to establish a kingdom there, a real kingdom that will last on this earth for a thousand years. Uh, During that time, there's only going to be peace. On this earth. But after that thousand year period is over, he's got some unfinished business to do. After that thousand years, he's going to take Satan, that great adversary that, that uh, Beth was talking about this morning, our great enemy, and he's going to cast him into hell. Hallelujah. I can't wait for that day. He's going to cast him into hell where he will stay forever and ever and ever. And those who rejected Christ during this life, those who never accepted Christ during this life, those who just never came to the place where they were willing to accept him will find themselves standing before the great white throne judgment. They will find themselves standing before Jesus, the judge, who will have but one horrible verdict for them, which is, depart from me, be cursed into everlasting fire, 
prepared for the devil and his angels, and they will go from his presence and join Satan in hell, where they will stay forever and ever and ever. And then this sin-cursed, sin-burdened world will be undone. It will be recreated. And we, will, we who trusted Christ will live with him forever and ever in that new heaven and new earth forever. Yeah, he's coming again. It's an established fact of history. He's coming again. But you might be sitting there saying, okay, well, when? When? I want to know when. When is this thing supposed to happen? It's been talking about it now for 2,000 years. When is it going to happen? Well, the Bible not only teaches that it's a fact, but it teaches that it can happen at any time. There's a word that is often used to describe the second coming of Christ, and that's the word imminent. The coming of the Lord is imminent, meaning it could take place any time. The songwriter said maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, maybe soon. Oh, what a wonderful day it will be. Jesus is coming again. It could be in the next five minutes. And some of you might be hoping it is, but he's coming again. One man said every generation of Christians has been called to live with the awareness that the Lord could come at any time and to let that awareness shape their lives. This is what James was talking about when he's talking about here the coming of the Lord. He wasn't talking about the first coming. He was talking about the second coming, the fact that Jesus is coming again. And that's why he referred to the coming of the Lord so many times in these verses. But he talked about something else here, too. He didn't just talk about the coming of the Lord, did he? He also talked about something else over and over. He talked about patience a lot. Do you see that there? Patience. He mentioned that four times, I think, in verses 7 and 8 and 10. He also gave three different examples of people who demonstrate or demonstrated patience. He talked about a farmer in verse number 7. He talked about the prophets in verse 10. He talked about Job in verse number 11. And so patience. He's talking about that a lot. He had actually started his letter with this thought. Do you remember that all the way back in James chapter 1? He talked about, uh, uh, blessed are uh, those who endure temptation, trials, and patience. He talked about in that passage. And now he's circling all the way back around and kind of drawing his thoughts to a conclusion here in the last chapter of James. Patience. It's a word that remains to remain under. It's a word that means to stay put and stand fast. When you'd like to run away. Patience. We've all had days like that, haven't we? So this passage is about the coming of the Lord. And it's about patience. And if you put those two thoughts together, I think this passage is about the need for patience in light of the coming of the Lord. Or the need for patience because of the coming of the Lord. When our faithful waiting will be rewarded and when everything will be made right. Two things I want you to think about this morning. From this passage, which I think will be helpful to us. Two things James said. He said the coming of the Lord gives us hope in our patience. And he also said the coming of the Lord gives purpose to our patience. Let's just think about those for a minute. The coming of the Lord gives us hope. Hope in our patience. I see that in verse number 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. The coming of the Lord is our hope. The coming of the Lord is what the Apostle Paul called the blessed hope. In in Titus chapter 2 and verse number 13, he said, We are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, he had said, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But this is not the only place we have hope. There is hope beyond this life. The coming of the Lord is that blessed hope. And Jesus, or James gives us a couple of examples here that, that help us kind of to see what he's talking about here. He gives us the example of the farmer, and he gives us the example of the prophets. And they both teach us something a little bit different about this hope that we have. In the example of the farmer, we have the hope of fruit, the hope of future harvest. You see that there? The farmers among us know what that's like. They know that harvest doesn't happen overnight. They know that it takes time and requires patience. Maybe that's one of the reasons why there's not so many farmers anymore. Because it takes a lot of time. And it takes a lot of patience. I've read and so have you about the decreasing number of farms that we have around us today. And as a matter of fact, we live in an area that used to be filled with farms and there's less and less that we see in our day. We live in a day and age of instant gratification. We have microwave ovens. We can cook a hot dog in seconds and we stand there and fume in fury waiting for those seconds to pass. <laughs> we sit with our engines idling at a stoplight behind somebody in front of us and if they do not rocket through the intersection the second it turns green, we're laying on the horn. Instant gratification. People today have very little in the way of attention spans. If I preach more than 30 minutes, you ought to see how you people start squirming around in here. It's pretty amazing. It's almost enjoyable. Sometimes I think about preaching more than 30 minutes just to see it. Kids, amazingly enough, all seem to have the bladder capacity of 90-year-old men. I don't know how that's happened in this generation. Some adults seem to have the same problem, it seems. Five minutes into the sermon, rushing for the bathroom. No attention span. No attention span. The need for instant gratification and the lack of attention span, they're simply indications of a larger issue, aren't they, that James is talking about here? And that's a lack of patience. A lack of patience. The farmer who thinks that way is going to grow very discouraged and he's going to quit after his very first planting because it takes patience. Ben Patterson wrote a book, and I've quoted from it several times. I apologize for this flaw in my character. Whenever I'm reading a book, I quote from it multiple times and torture everybody with quotes from it. But uh, this is a good book. It's called Deepening Your Relationship with God, The Life-Changing Power of Prayer. And I've quoted from it multiple times, I know. But in there, he tells the story of George Mueller. George Mueller was a great prayer warrior. And we've probably all heard before of the time that George Mueller decided early in his life that he was going to pick about four or five, I can't remember how many it were, four or five different people, and he was going to pray for their souls, and he was going to pray for them every day for the rest of his life if he had to. He was never going to stop. He was going to pray every day, whether he was sick, whether he was well, no matter what the situation, he was going to find time to pray for these people that they would be saved. And the story goes that one of those people was saved relatively soon, a few months thereafter, and George Mueller wrote in his journal that he, he thanked the Lord for that one, and he kept right on praying. And then the second one was saved sometime thereafter, maybe a couple years. I can't remember the numbers. Uh, and he thanked the Lord for that one, and he kept on praying. And something like 35 years passed before the third one was saved. And he thanked the Lord for that one, and he kept on praying. But then George Mueller died, with two of them not yet saved. But yet they did get saved. And they got saved after he had already gone home to be with the Lord. His patience was, was rewarded. But Ben Patterson, when he is... Sharing that illustration about prayer, he goes on and he says this. He says, most of us are not like Mueller. 
products of a culture of instant gratification. We give up if we don't see a fairly quick response to our prayers. But praying, like so many matters of the kingdom of God, is like farming. Imagine a farmer turning the soil, adding fertilizer, planting seeds, sprinkling a little water, then standing over the spot for just a few minutes, waiting for something to happen, and when no shoot comes up, walking away, shaking his head and saying, well, I guess that didn't work. Farmers know better. Crops take persistent cultivation and time to yield a harvest. Like good farming, good praying demands of us a quality of character that one man called a long obedience in the same direction. Another man said, the idea is to set the timer of one's temper for a long run. Think long. Focus on the final lap in the race of life. Have a long fuse. Look ahead to the Lord's coming. You see, in his example of the farmer, James is reminding us that the coming of the Lord brings the hope of fruit, the hope of harvest, but not immediately. It takes time. It doesn't take place overnight. God is working, and we must wait upon his timing. Paul told the Galatians, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. The psalmist said, he who continually goes forth weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. So in the example of the farmer, James is saying that our, our hope, uh, uh, it teaches us the importance of, of uh, hoping for fruit. That the, the, the farmer demonstrates to us that we're going to have fruit and harvest. My mind went blank there for a minute. He goes on, he gives another, the example of the prophets. Notice what he says about the prophets. In them we have the reminder that hardship does not negate the hope. That although at times it may appear that God has abandoned us, he never does. The prophets endured, the prophets were patient, and we can and must learn from their example. Think back over their lives. Think back to the stories of the prophets in the Old Testament. And if you, if you don't read your Bibles, this will be hard for you. This is one reason we should read our Bibles. But think back over the stories of the Old Testament prophets. Their lives were far from easy. As a matter of fact, they were, for the most part, people who suffered incredible levels of difficulty and hardship in life. One man said how these men suffered. For over 40 years, Moses had to endure a complaining and grumbling people. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, was thrown into the mud of an empty cistern. Daniel was cast into a lion's den. Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, sealed his testimony with his blood as he was put to death in the temple. And, of course, those are just few. We could think of many other examples. The prophets remind us that in this life, we may have to endure hardship. We may have to go through hard things or hard times. That doesn't negate the hope that we have of future time with Christ. It doesn't negate the hope that we have for the future, the bliss that is ours in the future. Our hope is future. Future. In the present, we exercise patience. In the present, we endure hardship. Remember, James talked about that clear back in chapter 1. Jesus said in John chapter 16, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Paul was constantly going about strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Warren Wiersbe said, God is not going to right all the wrongs in this world until Jesus Christ returns. And we believers must patiently endure 
and expect. And so James says here that we're to patiently wait for the harvest like the farmer, and we're to patiently endure hardship until the coming of the Lord like the prophets. The coming of the Lord gives us hope and our patience. That's one thing he says. He says the second. He says the coming of the Lord gives purpose to our patience. Purpose to our patience. People, whether they are saved or lost, I don't know if you noticed, they like to talk about the end times. They like to talk about last things. They like to talk about prophecy. Whether people believe Jesus is coming back, coming back again, whether they believe in the coming of the Lord is irrelevant. It's just an intriguing topic. And it's kind of a tried and true way to draw a bit of a crowd and to draw some interest is to talk about prophecy. Well, I've never been a great student of prophecy. I think I have a pretty good grasp of the fundamentals, but if you're one of those people who has uh, all the minutiae of prophecy figured out, it won't take you long to come up with a question that I struggle to answer. But I do know some things. I do know that Jesus is coming again. I know it is a fact. And I know, I know, I know, I know that the Bible tells us that we as Christians are not to be idle while we're waiting for the coming of the Lord. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1, if you would. Acts chapter 1. And I want you to notice that the first disciples were mildly rebuked for just that kind of a mindset. Acts chapter 1, let's, uh, let's start in verse number 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. We are not to be idly gazing into heaven, as they were doing. And we can cut them some slack, because if we'd been there that day, we'd have done the exact same thing. We'd just been standing there, staring at the very spot we had last seen him go. But the picture is, that's not what we're supposed to be about. We're not supposed to be idly gazing. We're to be busy for Jesus. In Luke chapter 19 and verse number 13, Jesus told a parable. And the parable described his going away and his coming again. And in that passage, he said that we were to occupy until he comes. Occupy until I come. Or we might translate that, do business until I come. Be busy. He illustrated that same truth in his parables of the pounds and the talents. We're to be busy while we await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of the Lord. Paul taught about spiritual gifts. We talk about spiritual gifts every once here, every once in a while here. He said all Christians were given a gift or gifts, spiritual gift or gifts, and that we are to be busy in the exercise of those gifts. He didn't give them to us so that we could just idly hold them by. They were given for a specific purpose, building up the local church, the benefit of our brothers and sisters in the local church. They're reminders that we're not to be idle while we're waiting. We're to be busy. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 and verse 43, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So, we're to be doing. We're to be busy. We're not to be idle. We're to be about the master's business while we're waiting. And James here in this passage, I think, gives us two specific areas that we need to concentrate on doing 
what we ought to be doing while we're waiting for the coming of the Lord. And he, he says we should be looking at the establishing of our hearts and the building of our character. Just for a second, bear with me. The establishing of our hearts, the building of our character. The first is in verse number 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. In organizations, it's often been said that everything rises and falls on leadership. You've probably heard that particular phrase used. It's true of businesses. It's true of corporations. It's true of countries. It's true of churches. Everything rises and falls on leadership. I think we could also say that with respect to an individual Christian's walk with God, everything rises and falls on the condition of your heart. Everything rises and falls on your heart. And notice what James says here. He says that while we wait for the coming of the Lord, we ought to be working on our heart. We ought to be establishing our heart. That that word establish, if you're holding a different Bible, it, it might say something like strengthen. Strengthen your heart. It might say stand firm. So we're to establish our heart, strengthen our heart, firm it up while we wait for the Lord. You might be thinking, well, how do I do that? If that's what I'm supposed to be spending my time on, how do I do that? How do I establish my heart? And some thoughts come to my mind. One of the thoughts that comes to my mind, first of all, is guard it. Guard your heart. I think there's a song like that. Guard your heart. Certainly plenty of verses we could look at. Protect your heart from evil influences. We we bombard our hearts with so much Trash and garbage and dirt. Guard it. Guard it. And then feed it. Good food from God's word. We feed it everything else. Feed it the word of God. Seek help for it in prayer. Pray and ask God to put a hedge around your heart that it might be established. Warren Wiersbe has something to say about it. He points out that establishing our heart actually takes place within the confines of the local church. He says God has raised up the church for the very purpose of helping us to be established in the faith, establishing our heart. As James said, Romans chapter 1, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established, Paul said. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, therefore when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. And so I wonder this morning, brothers, sisters, are you working on your heart? Are you working on your heart? While you wait for the coming of the Lord, are you working on establishing your heart? Are you guarding it? Are you feeding it? Are you praying that God will put a hedge of protection around it? Are you immersing yourself in the gift that is the local church that God has raised up that we might be so established? Establish your hearts. He said there's another thing here, and this might be a little harder to see. He said, while we wait for the coming of the Lord, we should be building our character. Look at verse number 9. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Look at verse number 12. But But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Do not grumble, verse number 9. It's an interesting word used there. It literally is the word groan. Groan. I heard it described or read it described as a half-suppressed murmur of impatience and harsh judgment, not uttered aloud or freely. I get the impression that James is talking about the kind of grumbling that we don't say with our out loud voice. 
The kind of grumbling that is just inside. And we're all guilty of that. Do not grumble, verse number 9. He says, do not swear, in verse number 12. Let your yes be yes, and your no, no. And I don't have much time here this morning to, uh, to delve deeply into these thoughts. But I, I think the gist of what James is trying to say here is that these are two things that ought to be diminishing in our lives. Because as we are waiting for the coming of the Lord, our character should be building and replacing those things. That diminishment of grumbling and that diminishment of swearing signals the growth of character. Now, I'm not certain. I can't be absolutely sure where the verse 12 goes with this section. If you look at your Bibles, it's hard to tell. Does verse 12 go with this passage that he's talking about here, the coming of the Lord, or does it go with the passage that follows? Or does it stand all by itself? It's hard to say. But I think it does make some sense to include it here. Have you ever known anybody that you trusted completely? Have you ever known somebody that you trusted so much that you were absolutely certain when they said something that they were going to do what they said? Have you ever known somebody like that? Their character was so established in your mind that if they said yes to you, you knew the answer was yes. If they said no to you, you believed them. The person who has to, on the other hand, bolster their credibility all the time with lots of I promises and lots of I swear, I really do want a stack of Bibles. That kind of person does not have nearly the credibility. And I think what James is saying here is, this is a picture of a person whose character has grown, who's becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll leave the development of those thoughts for your personal study. You can think about that a little bit on your own. But I think that's what he's saying. He's saying, while we wait patiently for the coming of the Lord, we should not only be working on our hearts, but we should also be working on our character. Becoming that kind of a person that somebody can believe without question because we have that character. Well, so James is talking here about the coming of the Lord. It's fact. It's imminent. And by the way, did you notice how he described the soonness of the thing? Did you notice that? In verse number 8, he said the, Lord, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Did you notice that it's at hand? It's right here. It's right here. And did you notice also in verse number 9, he said the judge is standing at the door. What a picture that is of the imminent return of Christ. He's right there. He's standing on the threshold, ready to cross over. Imminent. So all how we need to hear the word of the Lord today. We need to be patient until the coming of the Lord. We need to be like the farmer, patiently waiting for and trusting in the harvest to come. We need to be like the prophets, enduring hardship as we await the coming of the Lord. Bearing up under the trials of this life. Trusting completely that the hardships we go through, the difficult days we go through, they do not negate the promises of God. And they do not negate the fact that we have hope for the future. In this world we struggle. In this world we have tribulation. But only in this world. And oh, how we need to be busy. Working on our hearts and our character. Letting him mold both into what he wants them to be. And never losing sight of the promise. Did you see the promise in there? We didn't talk about the promise. The promise is in verse number 11. When he talks about the end intended by the Lord. That the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. The promise is only good. Overflowing good. Forever. Let me close with a story. Stories of Adoniram Judson. Some of you have perhaps heard of Adoniram Judson. He was a missionary. He was an American missionary. He arrived in Burma or Myanmar in 1812. 
He died there 38 years later in 1850. During that time, he suffered much for the cause of the gospel. He was imprisoned, he was tortured, he was kept in shackles. His first wife, Anne, died while he was there. And after the death of his wife, to whom he was very devoted, for several months he was so depressed that he sat daily beside her tomb. Three years later, he wrote, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I cannot find him. But Adoniram's faith sustained him, and he threw himself into the tasks to which he believed God had called him. He worked feverishly on his translation of the Bible. The New Testament had now been printed, and he finished the Old Testament in early 1834. Statistics are unclear, but there were only somewhere between 12 and 25 professing Christians in the country when he died, and there were no churches to speak of. At the 150th anniversary of the translation of the Bible into the Burmese language, Paul Borthwick was addressing a group that was celebrating Judson's work. And just before he got up to speak, he noticed in small print on the first page of the Bible the words translated by Reverend A. Judson. So Borthwick turned to his interpreter, a Burmese man named Matthew, and asked him, Matthew, what do you know of this man? And Matthew began to weep as he said, we know him. We know how he loved the Burmese people, how he suffered for the gospel because of us, out of love for us. He died a pauper, but left the Bible for us. When he died, there were few believers. But today, there are over 600,000 of us. And every single one of us traces our spiritual heritage to one man, the Reverend Adoniram Judson. But he never saw it in this life. Oh, he saw it when he got to glory, but he never saw it in this life. So I guess the charge for us this morning is, will you be patient, Christian, until the coming of the Lord? You may have to wait for the harvest, but be patient. You may have to endure some things. Some of you are enduring some things now, but be patient. And use this waiting time. While we're waiting for the coming of the Lord to work on your heart, to work on your character, and keep your eyes on the finish line, the crossing of which will reveal the end intended by our Lord, the overflowing compassion, the never-ending compassion and mercy that our loving God has for all of us. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord.